I want to tell you this morning about a man who experienced what would maybe call the ultimate pandemic experience. His name was Alexander Selkirk. He was from Scotland. He hired himself out on an ocean-going vessel, and they traveled across the oceans, went to Chile in the Pacific Ocean, and they were refitting the boat. And Alexander Selkirk said, I do not think that this boat is seaworthy. And they went out to sea, and he kept saying, this boat is not seaworthy. And finally, the captain had enough of it and said, well, we'll just let you by yourself. And so they stopped on an uninhabited island 420 miles off the coast of Chile and put Alexander Selkirk on the island with a musket and a little ammunition and three days provision of food and a Bible and a hatchet. And this ship went on and it did flounder and they had to be rescued and some of them had to go to some type of servant, indigenous servanthood, but Alexander Selkirk was on this island for five years by himself. And he says in his diary that he had to befriend feral cats because the rats were so aggressive on this island. He'd sleep with feral cats around to scare off the rats, but he survived. Five years later, he's building a fire, a ship comes by, drops anchor, takes him to Scotland. His story is broadcast and it becomes the background of a book called Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. In fact, that island was renamed Robinson Crusoe Island years later. Now think about the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks 20 years ago when Tom Hanks was marooned on the island and his only companion was a volleyball he called Spalding. But, but the, the point is, is, that, is that loneliness is a horrible thing. And we've had people who have been isolated and lonely during this COVID experience. And I want to talk to you about a man this morning who experienced loneliness in the midst of a crowd. You can be lonely in the midst of a crowd. You can be forlorn and hopeless in the midst of a massive city. So this man's name is Zacchaeus, and his story is found in Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus. A man who is lonely by his own making as a chief tax collector who is incredibly wealthy and also a man who is lonely in a crowd. So this, the scripture says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled and said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I want to answer four questions this morning, four questions. The first is this, is why was Zacchaeus seeking to see and encounter Jesus? Number two, why did Zacchaeus receive Jesus joyfully? 
Number three, why did the crowds murmur or moan or groan in despair? And number four, why did the Lord say salvation has come to this house? Those four questions. The first is this, why, why, why was Zacchaeus anxious to encounter or see Jesus? Well, here's the answer in part. First of all, Zacchaeus was a man who was filled with despair and loneliness. He was a chief tax collector in Jericho. Jericho is a main thoroughfare. He's the chief tax collector. So he had several tax collectors underneath him. And the Bible says he was very wealthy. So if you have a thoroughfare going into Jerusalem and you tax people as they go, you've just won the lottery. You've hit the mother load. And so Zacchaeus for years has been taxing people and having his hand greased and taking money off the top that weren't, wasn't necessarily going to the Roman government. And he'd become very wealthy and he would lay awake at night in his room, and he would see the beautiful tapestries on his wall if his candle was lit, and he would be able to understand that over there is, the, is his closet filled with incredibly expensive robes, and he had everything going for him, but he had a restless conscience, and he was lonely. See, he could not say what the psalmist says when he woke up at night in Psalm 63. The psalmist says this, my soul, verse 5, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed, and I meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. The, the psalmist says, yeah, I wake up at night. We all wake up at night. And he says, when you wake up at night, what do you do? And the psalmist says, I meditate upon the goodness of the Lord. I meditate on the fact that I can rest in the shadow of the embrace of the living God who made the heavens and the earth, and it is good. So I wake and I meditate. Zacchaeus couldn't do that. Zacchaeus had been kicked out of the synagogue because he was a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus was outside of the covenant embrace of the people of God. Zacchaeus had no hope. He was forlorn. He was abandoned. He could not say with the psalmist in Psalm 32, which is a general prayer of praise and thanksgiving written by David, happy or blessed is the man in whose spirit and who, who, excuse me, whose, whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Happy or blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Zacchaeus couldn't say that. He was filled with despair and loneliness and sorrow. He could not say what David says in Psalm 16, 8. I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He didn't have that hope. No hope. And so this prospect of hopelessness had fallen upon his spirit. And yet, Zacchaeus had heard through the fraternal organization of the tax collectors, through the tax collector grapevine, something that's recorded in Luke chapter 5. And that's when Jesus called a tax collector to himself named Levi. It says, Jesus went to Levi's house, and Levi made him a great feast, and there was a large company of tax collectors there. And they were all reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples. And they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you know, Zacchaeus heard that from one of his tax collector friends, that one of our fraternal members of our organization, Levi has been called, Matthew has been called, and he's a disciple of this peripatetic teacher, this teacher named Jesus, this rabbi, and, and this teacher named Jesus corrected and admonished and rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees and says, you know, I didn't come to call healthy people, but sick people. I've come to be a shepherd to the souls of people who need a savior. And Zacchaeus must have thought, could it be? And then we saw just a few weeks ago in the previous chapter that Jesus tells a parable this to get under your skin. And he said in this parable that Two men went to pray. One was a tax collector who stood in the corner and beat his breast and wouldn't even look to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee stood in the midst of everybody and raised his hands and says, God, I'm like you, that I'm not like that tax collector. I don't cheat and steal and defraud people like he does, but I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get to the poor. I am one of your choice people. I'm a good guy. And then Jesus says from this story that really got under their skin, he said, guess who went home right with God? The tax collector. Behold, the gospel of grace, the, 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 the hope. So, so he had this, this hope. And, and then this man of pain and horror and loneliness who had hope, maybe birthed in his heart just a little bit. He, he did two things that were very unnatural that I love in this story. The first thing is that he ran ahead. Now listen, grown men in our day and in that day do not run ahead unless they've got jogging stuff on. You just don't run. It's considered to be unceremonial. So he runs ahead and it says in the scripture that he was small of stature, so he couldn't see over the crowd. And of course, if you're a tax collector and some fellow Jews see you, an outcast who works for the Roman government standing in the crowd, they just kind of close ranks and you can't see. And maybe they elbow you as they close ranks. So not only did he run ahead, but he did something totally uncalled for and, and unceremonial. He climbed a tree. Grown men don't climb trees. But he climbed a tree and he's up there with probably some, some kids, and he sees the crowd coming, and the crowd's getting closer, and, and, and lo and behold, the, the crowd surrounding Jesus comes toward his tree, and then he stands under the tree, under the tree, the very tree where Zacchaeus is, and Zacchaeus says, I can't, I, I can't believe this, the teacher is going to stand right, he's going to pass by my tree, but when he gets to the tree, under the tree, he stops. And he looks up and he points to Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus goes, wow. So the second question, why did Zacchaeus receive him gladly? Well, the text really doesn't answer it. But let me just say, there was a tenderness and a kindness and a embrace in the spirit of Jesus that Zacchaeus had not encountered for years and years and years since he became a tax collector. There was a, a welcome and an invitation and a kindness in the reality of Christ. And in the midst of all this, and this is what's crazy, he doesn't say, hey, you come down. 
He says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. And Zacchaeus goes, man, he's called me by name. He knows my name. And I've been thinking about this passage, and I remember thinking about a song we sing here frequently. It was written about 25 years ago, and it's, it's entitled, You Have Called Me By Name. And it starts off saying this, Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and, and the vast starry universe, and yet you've called me by name. This is the way the song goes. Yet you have called me by name. You are acquainted with all of my ways, bought by your blood, drawn by your love. I am your dwelling place. For you have called me your friend, showing me favor again and again. I'm set apart. Dear to your heart, you've called me by name. That's just amazing. And it celebrates the fact that God calls us unto himself. Psalm four, excuse me, Isaiah 49 says that, that, that the Lord died with the names of his people engraved on the palm of his hand. He knows us. He's acquainted with all of our ways, and he loves us. He loves his people. You've called me by name. Behold the glory of the gospel. That is why Zacchaeus received him with great joy, the welcoming presence of Jesus. And then John chapter 15, Christ says, greater love has no man than this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says this. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go, and that you should bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. And I, I, I stepped back here and I said, the, the Lord of the universe, whose name is Jesus, calls us his friend. He calls us by name. And Zacchaeus sensed that. And so that's why there was a glad reception. So he calls Zacchaeus down, and then the crowds murmur. The word here, murmur, means to groan or to really become inwardly disgusted. And the crowds may have said something like this. We know that you're the friend of sinners. And the way this passage ends, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, we know you've come to seek and save the lost teacher, but not this lost person. Not the chief tax collector who's incredibly wealthy because he's stolen from us. Surely, not, not this man, he should not be part of what's going on. And yet I read this and I say to myself with great joy, Jesus saves people that are very unlikely candidates of his mercy. Corrie ten Boom was a woman who lived in Holland. She died about 25 or 30 years ago, but she was a young woman in Holland when the Germans took over in World War II, and she and her four siblings, devout believers in Jesus, loved Jewish people. In fact, Corrie ten Boom loved physically disabled and mentally challenged people. She worked with the physically disabled. That was her livelihood as a young woman. And so when the Nazis came in and started deporting Jews, her family said, we're going to do everything we can to help our friends who are Jews. And, and so they built a, a hiding room in their place and where they could house six adults, 
at a time as they, as they stood up and they came to search, they couldn't find them and they gave them ration cards they were able to get and they fed them and, and they would get them out in a secret network and they saved literally scores and scores and scores of Jewish people and people from the Dutch underground who had been turned in. And so they did that for two years. And then in 1944, somebody turned them in and the Nazis came and arrested Corrie Ten Boom and her sister and her brother and her father. But anyway, she, she and her sister, older sister, sister Betsy, her dearest friend, were arrested, taken to a concentration camp called Ravensbrück, which is a women's concentration camp north of Berlin. And they were there, and the story is incredible. One of the stories is that in their particular housing unit where their other people were housed, that there was an infestation of lice. And so these lice would drive them crazy, but, but every night they would have a Bible study. And the guards never interfered with their Bible study. Other people, their Bible studies were broken up. They couldn't do it, but they had Bible study. They, they would sing, and they were never bothered. And they found out later that the guards were deathly afraid of and averse to lice. So the lice were really a Bible study-friendly group that cohabited the, the house with them. But late in uh, 1944, and December the 13th, about five months before the Nazis surrendered, Betsy Ten Boom died. Her older sister died of malnutrition and abuse. Um, and two weeks later, right before the new year, because of a clerical error, Corey Ten Boom was released from prison, went back home. And her cell block, uh, the week, a week later, was moved to Auschwitz, and they were never heard from again. So a clerical error saved her life. But after the war, she decided that the Lord was calling her to speak to different churches, small churches, uh, about the importance of forgiveness. And two years after the war, in 1947, she's in Munich, Germany, and she speaks at a small church, and she talks about the forgiveness of sin and being reconciled. She says, the Lord, by his death upon the cross, has taken all of our sin and cast them into the deepest ocean in a place that can never, ever be discovered or found again. That's the good news of the gospel. And she said she was standing there after the service and a man came up the aisle and as soon as she saw him, she recognized him as one of the most heinous guards at Ravensbrook. And he came up to her and he said, sister, he said, uh, I was a guard at Ravensbrook. And then Corey Tim Boone realized, I recognize him and he does not recognize me. And he said, after the armistice, I heard the gospel and I've become a believer in Jesus. And I rejoice with you that my sins have been cast into the deepest sea and can never be retrieved. And the blood of Christ has covered my sin. He says, but I want to ask you this, as a guard who tormented people at Ravensbrook, can you forgive me? And Corey Timboom said, he extended his hand and she looked down and started rummaging through her purse. And she said, I had this incredible inner conflict saying, can I really forgive this man? Can, can I forgive this man who may have been complicit in the death of my, my, my sister? This man who was abusive? And she said, it was only probably five or 10 seconds, but it seemed like two years. And finally, the Lord dealt with me and said, you must, because the Bible says, if you don't forgive men their sins, then neither will your father in heaven forgive your sins. And so she said, I looked up and I took his hand and said, yes, brother, I can forgive your sins. And she said she felt a burden lifted off of her shoulder. And she said, that's the most difficult thing I have ever done. I, I, I think of Zacchaeus. And I'm sure that the good Jews there 
who were rules keepers, who had done the right thing, said, we're so glad this teacher talks about the forgiveness of sin, but surely not that guy in the tree, not that guy who stole them from us and defrauded us and has lived in wealth and surplus all these years, not him. But that's exactly who Jesus called because that is the gospel of grace. Years ago, a man had a conversation with me. He was working his way through the gospel. And was, he said, I'm, I'm trying to really understand the deeper parameters of the gospel. He said, let me ask you this question. And he was a history, lover of history. He said, let's go to the bunker in Berlin, May of 19, or April, May of 1945. Adolf Hitler's there. The Soviets are coming in. He realizes it's over. And so he took a gun and he killed his brand, his new wife. And then he turned the gun upon himself and took his life so he wouldn't fall into the hands of the Soviets. Are you telling me that after Hitler killed his wife and he fell on his face and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Cover my sin by the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for those who would trust him. Are you telling me that if he did that, Adolf Hitler went to heaven? And I said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what the Bible says. His response was this, wow, wow. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The most heinous people are saved by the blood of Jesus by the goodness of the cross. You see, I look at the, the, the murmurers who said, yes, he loves all type of people, but please not that guy. And I think of the, in Luke 15, there's a parable called the parable of the prodigal son, and really it's the parable of the two brothers. It's, it's, you know the story, if you've been around long here in the church, but there, there is a, Jesus tells this story that gets under your skin, and he says there was a, a younger brother who wanted to get his inheritance, so he goes to the dad, and he says, Dad, I need my inheritance because I want to leave home. And, and really what the son was saying was, Dad, I wish you were dead. <laughs> I wish you were dead. And so the father, Jesus says, gave him his inheritance. He went to a far country and he spent it all on what we call wine, women, and song. And one day he's feeding pigs, unclean animals. And he says, these pigs are eating better than I am. And yet my father has a lavish spread. So I'm going to go back home and I'm going to be at the lowest of the low servants just so I can eat. And he says, Jesus says, he starts home and his father sees him from a distance and runs to meet his son and embraces him before his son can even apologize and ask forgiveness. He says, kill the fatty calf, put the ring upon his finger, put a rich robe around him. And they have a party. The older brother is down in the lower 40. He comes in from tending the sheep and he hears a party going on. And he says to one of his servants, he says, what's going on? He says, hey man, your brother who was lost is now found. There is a huge party going on. They're celebrating his return. And the older brother refuses to go to the party. And this is what the scripture says. He was angry. 
and, and refused to go into the party. And his father came out to him and pled with him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. And, and when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatty calf for him. You hear that? Your son, not my brother, your son did this, your son and I, and I read that, and I, you know, I just call that the elder brother syndrome. And you know, if we don't, if, listen church, if we forget the gospel of grace, and we forget that God calls Zacchaeuses out of sycamore trees, unlikely people, we can become elder brothers. Elder brothers are known for a number of things, but let me mention three. The first is this, the elder brother says, I, I've worked very hard to earn the favor of the father, and I'm due. I've done, and I've done, and I've done, and I've done. Now, I, I've got God in my corner. That's not the gospel. The gospel is he saves an undeserving man, an undeserving woman like us. The second thing about the elder brother syndrome is, is that they have a sense of superiority. You know, I really am better than them. I'm, I think better. I reason better. I live better. Therefore, I, I deserve these things. And so you look down on people. The third thing is that elder brothers are really, really consumed with image management. Not sin management, but image management. Not repenting of sin, but just looking good and being well thought of. This story destroys the elder brother syndrome. And you come to the fourth question. Why did Jesus say salvation has come to this home? Here, here's the answer. Zacchaeus, after encounters, Jesus stands up and he says, Lord, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'm going to give them four times what I defrauded them. I, in other words, he was a changed man. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It's nothing we've done. And then verse 10 says, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So faith is the root Faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. But this faith doesn't stay alone. It produces fruit in keeping with our repentance. So, so Jesus laughs, I think, with joy and says, salvation has indeed come to this house. And so the, the question I have as I look at this is, how do we continue to grow in the, the knowledge of God in such a way that we produce fruit? And, and here's, here's the answer from Colossians 1. And it's, it's, it's simple, but it's glorious. The answer is we grow deeper and deeper in the reality of the gospel and we mine the gold and the precious jewels that's found in understanding and appropriating the gospel of grace. Listen to chapter one of Colossians, verse five. Paul says this. He says, of, of, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul says, you grow, you become fruit-bearing disciples, you become like Christ as you drill down into the gospel of glorious grace and mercy that's found because of the shed blood of the cross. We rejoice every day in the gospel of grace. We rejoice every day that we were in a sycamore tree, we were unworthy, and God called us down. And so hope is birthed afresh. 
So let's go back to World War II. Let's go back to Corey Ten Boom. So when her sister died, the day before her sister died, Betsy died. She looked at Corey Ten Boom and she says, There is no hole, there's no hole so deep where the love of God is not deeper. In other words, don't ever lose hope. The Germans surrender, and there were four women who were notorious in their work in the concentration camp who were publicly executed by the Allied forces. I read recently about one woman whose first name was Irma. Irma was at Ravensbrück, and then she was transferred to Auschwitz. She was only 20, 21, 22, and she was given the title the hyena of, of Auschwitz, a scavenger animal, a horrid person. She brutalized and beat people. And so after the war, she was found out and the Allies brought her in and the British tribunal did an oversight of what she did and had a trial and she was condemned to be put to death. One year and four days after the death of Betsy Van Boom. Or Tim Boom. And so she's, she's going to be put to death the next day. She's in a cell with a woman who's also going to be executed two days after her. And the historical account is that into the wee hours of the morning, these two women were singing songs about the glory of Nazi Germany. When I read that, I wanted to cry. I thought, you're in prison. You're going to be put to death in a few hours. And so, so what do you sing about? You sing about a country and a government that's broken and despised and on the ash dump of history called the Nazi movement. It's over. It's over. And yet this is what they sang about. This was their hope. And I, I thought, you know, there's no reason to sing. If that is your hope, you have no hope. Now, now we, we don't, in our community, we don't sing about Nazi, the Nazi movement. But, but, but sometimes our hope is found in our academic accomplishments or our family heritage, or maybe our political movement we're in, or, or maybe our economic viability. And, and these are things that give us hope. These things don't give you hope. These things can crash and burn and be taken away very quickly. Your health, very quickly, boom, it's gone. That which gives hope is Christ, the reality of the cross, the hope of heaven, the door that's opened through the work of Jesus. So, so because of that, we have hope and purpose and dignity, and we have a gospel to preach. And we're going to close it down. I'm going to pray for two young men who are here today, and they're going to come up, and we're going to pray for them. We have Jordan Causey, who's just came a few weeks ago to work with our middle schoolers, and Alec Eimenheiser, who works with our high school students, and these brothers so glad they're here. Um, we have so many middle school and high school students in our community that need to hear the gospel. So we just want to pray for them, let you see them without masks on so you know what they look like. And uh, pray for them as we ask the Lord to bless them. Um, so let's, let's, let's pray for them, okay? Lord, we uh, pause now to thank you for the gospel of grace that saves outcast, lonely people like Zacchaeus, that speaks hope to people in a world with no hope. And I pray that as Alec and 
Jordan work with these young students, that they would speak the gospel of hope. I pray that they would be bold in their faith, that they'd be men of the word. I pray for their personal purity. I, I pray for um, a, a, a godly zeal that would push the boundaries. I pray that, I think that we have the privilege through our tithes and offerings to support ministries that reach the coming generations. So we pray for them. We pray that you, by your blessed presence, Holy Spirit, would anoint them and build them and encourage them and strengthen them in the days and months to come. And I, I pray that they would have a vision, understand that in 15 and 20 years when these students are, are adults and who are, they're standing for Christ and they're living valiantly and they're speaking his name to those around them, whether they're in, in law or medicine or auto mechanics or the military or homemaking, whatever they do, that, that, that they would, would see that these, these adults would say, you know, one thing that grabbed my attention was a, was a middle school director or a high school director who lovingly shepherded my heart in the name of Jesus and pointed me to the greatness of the Savior. So build them, strengthen them, encourage them by your outstretched arm. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.